Almost four decades ago, my precious wife Sherry and I, we experienced an evening we have never forgotten. We were serving in an inner city ministry in a Southern California city, but that weekend we had gotten away to the coastal town of Oxnard, where the ministry we worked for owned a retreat house near the beach. We had gone out to eat earlier that evening, and now it was night and dark, and we had retreated to the beautiful beach of nearby Ventura. The waves were gently lapping the shore rhythmically, almost put you to sleep as you walked, but the giant full moon mounted perfectly at about 45 degrees in the western sky was so radiant that that was never going to happen. You could see every single feature of the moon that night. But still, the millions of stars had their own brilliance as they pierced the black velvet cloudless sky around it. But what captured Sherry and I that night was how the light of the moon, as it hung out over the endless blackness of the sea, formed this pathway of gold from the horizon right up to the shore where we stood in awe. You had the sense that you could almost walk out on this golden pathway this corridor, right out to the moon and touch it. Being near the ocean in the late summer, the temperature was perfect and the humidity ideal and the smell of the ocean was wonderful. And we both still vividly remember walking that night, hardly believing this was real, really. And the creator of the universe was displaying such breathtaking beauty to us. That, my friends is a weak attempt to capture in words the experience we had. That just doesn't get you there. But it's the best I can do. That experience is a crippled and tawdry example of the shocking, breathtaking inability to describe the event called the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. As we study it, it is apparent that each of the gospel writers cannot quite find adequate words to describe it. It's not that, that the words are insufficient, for the Word of God is perfect and fully sufficient in all it says. But the very way it is written, how you read it, and, and, it's, and like it's, it's working so hard, it elevates the phenomenon to the point that, realize, that we realize we are seeing something that is beyond full description. It is the glory of God in display in a supernatural way to mere mortal men and women like you and me. A prophetic promise in verse 1. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now the meaning of this prophetic promise of Christ has been debated, been debated long and hard, and, and there are several interpretations as to what Jesus was talking about. Let's break it down a bit, and I'll share some of the proposed ideas and then the one which seems best to me. We begin here with the confidence. Assuredly, I say to you. Now, that's a very unique phrase. Throughout all of Scripture, this phrase appears only in the Gospels, and it is only spoken by Jesus. The phrase, assuredly, I say to you. It is an introduction that Jesus uses to say, this is high priority, men. Listen up. Now, nothing Jesus ever said was unimportant, was it? But there were times when he spoke 
that even he gave special emphasis. And this is one of those. The timing. The timing is such that there are some of those standing with Jesus who will not taste death. In other words, they will not die until a certain event occurs. Now be careful. Be careful not to make this say something that it doesn't. Some people there with Jesus will not die until after they have seen the kingdom of God present with power. Some standing there may die before this happens and not see it. Others may not die before it happens and still not see it. They may not be those. But we know some will live to see what Jesus is talking about. This display of the kingdom of God with power. We will see the size of that group and its specific members in just a minute. Now the event he speaks of here, the kingdom of God present with power. And there have been several explanations about what Jesus means here. And that many of them are very, very good. First of all, Christ's resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand. This, most certainly, is a great display of power in the kingdom of God. Others, others see it as the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we know at that moment, it brought a completely new dimension, dimension of power and effect on the fledgling church in the kingdom of God. When the Spirit of God was poured out. A third way, from a much different angle, and this one of judgment. Some see the utter and complete destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 as this display of power. Fourthly, some view the early and explosive growth of the church as such a display of power. Especially as it's documented in the book of Acts. About 3,000 souls were added to the church by the time we get to Acts chapter 2 verse 41. By Acts 4.4, the number of the men, the men alone, came to be about 5,000. Sudden, rapid, explosive growth. Is that not a display of the power of God, of the kingdom? All of those have merit. And they're all supported by good Bible scholars. But the fifth option is the one that I think Jesus is referring to. And that is, as he speaks, he's speaking of the immediately approaching transfiguration of Jesus. The Son of God on the high mountain. Now the placement in the text is one of the reasons for that confidence. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three place Jesus' prophetic promise immediately before the event of the transfiguration. That seems to make the timing and order of events consistent and to show its importance. The transfiguration also fulfills all the nature excuse me, of the prophecy. Jesus uses the word kingdom here. It's the word basilia. It can refer to royal splendor. And as we get into this account, you are going to see how much this indescribable display is all about the royal splendor of Jesus Christ. And lastly, I would say to you, the very nature of the transfiguration, it is strategically important for the new And the very solemn direction that Jesus is describing to his disciples. Things have shifted dramatically in the last week. The whole emphasis of Jesus has gone a completely different direction with these disciples. They need something like this transfiguration. 
So we come to the astounding revelation of the Son of God. The indescribable Christ in Mark 9 verses 2 through 4. This, this is an event that truly defies comprehensive description. Let's look at first the privileged witnesses. The privileged witnesses. In other words, these are the some of you that Jesus is talking about in verse 1. These are the some of you who are going to witness the glory of the kingdom. Verse 2 reads, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. The timing here. It's after six days. It may seem insignificant, but this timing is the length of days that was an example of the Old Testament timing of preparation before God revealed Himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. We read in Exodus 24, Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now Luke 9.28, however, reads here about the same event. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. Then he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Quote, eight days is not a contradiction of six days in Mark. Eight days was a common Jewish phrase for about a week. We read about eight days, about a week. In the eight, Luke was also likely including the actual day Jesus spoke the prophetic promise and on the day on which it occurred. These kind of timing questions, they come up occasionally in the scriptures. And they are not difficult to understand if we look at the context and the way the time is being used. But I would say to you, more importantly, Luke adds a crucial detail that the other writers do not. I don't know why Luke was so attracted to this, but I'm so glad that he was. And, and you might keep your fingers there in Luke 9 and Matthew 17 because that's where these accounts are. Luke 9.28, let me read it again. It came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus was going up this mountain for a distinct purpose. And Luke gets it. He's going up on that mountain to pray. Jesus' praying really impacts Luke. And he notices it more than the other gospel writers. Jesus, we know, is a man in constant prayer. Luke's keen eye for this is seen a week earlier. Remember we were reading when the disciples joined Jesus on the road up north. Luke clarifies and emphasizes, and it happened as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him. Luke saw this, and it is so vitally important. Christ, the Son of God, was a man constantly in prayer, no matter where they were going or what was happening. Let that be us. Let that move us to become men and women that are constantly in prayer. Turn off the radio on your way to work and be in prayer. Put away the social media and be in prayer. Be there. And, and I, it's like I'm, I'm preaching to myself in these things. Be there. We do not need all of these things to fill our time when we could be speaking to the creator of the universe in praise and worship and thanksgiving. 
let alone supplication and prayers for those in need. The churches overseas in, in such great oppression, what is coming our way, those in our own assembly. Be much in prayer, but be in praise and thanksgiving. Christ was constantly in prayer. And I'm so grateful for Luke's keen eye to see this. The three witnesses. The number is not an accident. These men would fulfill the Old Testament requirement for the testimony of two or three witnesses. This began early in the Old Testament as seen in Deuteronomy 19 where we read one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. Jesus continues this condition when he said by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Paul also stood by this verification. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. And we have three witnesses coming with Christ to see this event on the mountain. The men. Now this was not only nor the first time these specific three men were set apart by Jesus. Earlier in Mark chapter 5 verse 37. As Jesus is headed to the home of Jairus. Jairus is broken hearted. The synagogue ruler's daughter has already died. And Jesus determined to give special opportunity to these three men. Peter, James and John. It is written he permitted no one to follow him. Except Peter, James and John the brother of James. And it's coming up in Mark. In Mark chapter 13 we will get there soon. Jesus will speak privately with these three. When they ask him what will be the sign when all these prophecies will be fulfilled. And then in the very last hours of Jesus' life, we see Jesus prior to the cross. And these three followers, Peter, James, and John, will accompany him in his ministry of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he will be arrested. He will be hauled off to the high priest's home and then before the Sanhedrin religious court. But these three will be with Jesus at very crucial times. And this is one of them. Now the location is a high mountain. Mount Tabor has once been the traditional site of Jesus' transfiguration. But it is far to the south of Caesarea Philippi, way up there at the north, where Peter has recently made his confession of Christ Jesus being the Son of God, being the Messiah. It's also the location where Jesus had given us, us the instructions that Brad preached to us about last week. So Mount Tabor is way down to the south. Mount Tabor is also less than 2,000 feet in elevation, making it more of a big hill than a high mountain. Thirdly, the peak of Mount Tabor was also not a place where they would have been alone. The Jewish historian Josephus reports that the summit of Mount Tabor was inhabited and surrounded by a wall at the time of Christ. Mount Hermon, however, is very near the site of Peter's confession of Christ up in the north. It also towers over the landscape of that region at a height greater than 9,000 feet. As I looked at photos of it, it was often covered with, with snow. It's a beautiful site. 
And it would have certainly allowed Jesus and his men to have been isolated from other people. They could have been alone up there. So on Mount Hermon, he was transfigured before them. And Luke does it again. He is transfigured before them in Luke 9.29 as he prayed. The metamorphosis of a man as God. Metamorpho, it's the word transfiguration. Meta means change. Morpho is form. He is transfigured. The complete physical appearance of Jesus is supernaturally transformed. And we get into some exciting things here. Suddenly the glory that was hidden and veiled in the cloak of His humanity burst forth, revealing the full deity of Christ to the watching disciples, described one of the commentators. Metamorpho occurs four times in the New Testament. And always it emphasizes a complete or radical change. Matthew uses it to describe the same event. Paul utilizes metamorpho in Romans 12.2. Listen to this. Romans 12.2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes again for the fourth use of metamorpho. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The transfiguration. In the transfiguration of Christ, there was a seismic change in His outward appearance. But no change in the nature. He remained fully God and fully man in all of His essence. For us, however, as humans, by God's transfiguration, our nature is what radically changed. And the outward appearance may be altered very little. It's a transfiguration, but it is radically different from the Creator of the universe who has existed eternally and His mortal creation who are radically transfigured by Him. We may not look a lot different on the outside, but we have become, as it is written in Corinthians, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new when we are transfigured by Christ. Verse 3. Here, here is where the attempt gets going. His clothes became shining, radiant, exceedingly white, intensely Dazzling white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. You see, the appearance of light was overwhelming, so much so that Mark makes four attempts to try to capture the magnitude of what this is. First, he says they are shining, they are radiant. Secondly, they are exceedingly or intensely or dazzlingly white. Thirdly, they are like snow. And fourthly, they are such that that no launderer on earth could ever whiten them or bleach them. He just can't quite get there. Luke 9, 29 says his clothes were glistening, which means they were lightning forth. They were radiant. And this is not a reflection of light. Jesus' clothes and his face were literally light, a searing light, dazzling, inapproachable light. It's used often in describing the glory of God's appearance. Matthew 17 verse 2. 
His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. Psalm 104 verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God. You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Who cover yourself with light as with a garment. That is what God wears. It is light. Daniel 7. I watched till the thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. And his throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. 1 Timothy 6, 15. He who is the blessed and only potentate. The sovereign. The king of kings. The lord of lords. Who alone has immortality. Dwelling in inapproachable light. Whom no man has seen or can see. To whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. It's a light inapproachable. You can't even get there. And in Revelation chapter 21, oh for that day, the city there had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. God manifests Himself in this way. This is God in the flesh. Jesus is revealing His God nature to these mortal men on the mountain. And I cannot say that Jesus is revealing His true nature. Because His physically unimpressive mortal body showed Him to be a man. That is because that is what He was, truly. But for this brief moment, He is unveiling the glorious deity of His nature as God. As breathtaking as this was, even this magnificent, indescribable revelation is an accommodation. As fantastic and difficult to describe as it is, it is God revealing Himself to mortal man in a way that man can somehow begin to grasp. It seems too fabulous to even describe to the writers. But to God, He is displaying His glory in a very limited way. So that it does not cause the three disciples to completely disintegrate in fear and wonder. It is as if the most intelligent, wisest man on earth was speaking to our longest, youngest child here. Then using the, the most simple one syllable vocabulary to help that child grasp the meaning. God is, is accommodating us. But for us, it, it's mind blowing. In this way, Christ pushes the envelope of man's capacity to grasp true, holy glory. He pushes it to the edge to stretch it, to expand further away from the temporal, physical reality and get us closer into the amazing, inexplicable, supernatural reality of God. This is amazing. And if that isn't mind-blowing enough, verse 4 and Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. We have the accompanying prophets of the past. We have the law and the prophets in the presence of the Messiah who fulfills them both. Moses, himself a prophet, but also the one who received the very law of God given to him on Mount Sinai. Elijah, perhaps the foremost prophet, he did not see death but was taken up alive into heaven 
by God via the chariots of fire. The message of Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 is on display here. God who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. And what did they talk about? Mark doesn't tell us. Their conversation. What, what new direction has Jesus been hammering home into the minds of his disciples probably for the last week? What has he been telling them? Look at eight, chapter 8 verse 31 of Mark. Mark 8 31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and three days and in three days rise again. Then he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men, the things of God, suffering, reproach, death. That is what Jesus has begun to teach them openly. Verse 34 when he had called the people to himself with his disciples, also he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That was not put on a pendant around your neck or, or wear a sweatshirt that has a nice uh, silk screen of, of a rugged looking cross. These men and women saw crosses along the roadside constantly with men hung up there. The stench, the agony of death, was everywhere. When Jesus said, take up the cross, it hit home to the very heart and minds of these people. This was not a quaint symbol. This was execution, often of innocent men and women. Jesus said, take up your cross. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? These, these guys have seen everything good to this point. They've seen people raised from the dead. People rejoicing. People running and leaping and praising God because they never walked in their life. People who had been blind from birth suddenly seeing everything before them. Rejoicing, thanksgiving. It was joyous. Do you think these guys thought this was a bad trip? No, this is who wouldn't want to be here. And then Jesus flips it. The kingdom will not come without suffering, persecution, and death. That's what Jesus has been teaching them. And it's a struggle for them. Luke 9.31 tells us what Elijah and Moses were talking about. They continued the topic of Jesus. They appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. Literally, it's his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That is what Elijah and Moses spoke to their Savior, Christ, about. The coming death. Can you, can you picture these things? It is, it is amazing. In the most ingenious way imaginable, Jesus brings together the seemingly incompatible truths that He is the glorious Son of God and that He must suffer and be killed 
The disciples could not place these two truths together in the same person. They understood and could hardly wait for the glory and victory part. But a Messiah who would suffer persecution, humiliation, and really die? Impossible. Yet in this amazing high mountain classroom with teachers like Elijah and Moses, Jesus gives them every opportunity to learn this truth. Luke then refers us here and says, But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, now they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And we come upon the mumbling of a mortal in fear in verses 5 through 6. The title here, Rabbi in Mark's Gospel. Lord in Matthew, Master in Luke. As usual, Peter is off to the races talking again. He probably blurted out all three of these titles in rapid-fire exclamations. Proverbs 18, 13. We must remember this. He who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. And that was Peter. His recommendation is that, well, it's good for us to be here. This is great. It's much better than all that suffering talk. Let's make three tabernacles for each of the three of you. Now, the timing of the transfiguration likely affects Peter's outburst. The celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And this is when the Jews commemorate their exodus out of slavery in Egypt. Perhaps Peter wanted to bask in this moment of glory and security and extend it for as long as possible. Other commentators suggest that Peter wanted to hold on to the moment in order to avoid suffering that Jesus had prophesied for he and the disciples. It's also quite possible that Peter may have seen this as the beginning of the actual coming of the Messiah. It has arrived, the moment we've been waiting for. At any rate, the Lord makes clear through the Apostle Paul that Peter's tabernacle proposal is totally out of touch with the reality of who the Creator is. Remember in Acts 17, before the Athenians, Paul is standing there and he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. The creator of the universe, that is Christ. We see that in, in John 1. We see that in Hebrews 1. We see that in Colossians 1. Christ created it. He doesn't need a tabernacle. And that's what Peter wanted to pro provide for him. That, that is nonsense. Whatever influenced Peter to make such a suggestion, we do not know. But Mark explains the main reason here, doesn't he? Peter said what he said because what verse 6 tells us. Because he did not know what to say. For they were greatly afraid. Terrified. Ekphobos. It means exceedingly frightened. Strong's Concordance says they were frightened out of one's wits. They were absolutely terrified by the supernatural revelation that was taking place before their very eyes. If you are afraid and you do not know what to say, keep quiet. The disciples had already begun. They'd begun to realize and they had confessed that Jesus was truly the Son of God. They did. They confessed that. But they confessed it as far as they understood what it meant to be the Son of God. 
They believed Jesus' claim to deity because they knew he was truth. His power over the demonic spirit world, his ability to heal every kind of sickness and disability known on earth, the power to even raise men from death to life, convinced them of his supernatural power. Jesus taught with authority never before heard from any man. So they believed he was from God. They knew he was the son of God. But by what he had taught and what he had done. So far it's by what he has taught and what he has done. But before this very moment in time, Jesus the son of God had looked every bit as common as any of the disciples he traveled with. And I mean that seriously. He looked no different than Peter, James, and John. Isaiah the prophet prophesied 700 years before the Messiah arrived. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. One preacher put it this way. He walked down the street and people didn't say anything. He was lost in the crowd. The people would have said, which one is Jesus of Nazareth? Unless he was teaching or unless he was doing a miracle. He was one of the group. You would never expect that God was there in the midst of the crowd in the Jerusalem markets. That in the midst of all that, there is divinity. But suddenly, Peter, James, and John are exposed to the terrifying sight, a minutia, a, a tiny fraction of the incomprehensible glory of the creator of the universe, covered beneath the flesh of his manhood. This is God. John later wrote, and I think this is very connected, in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt, and it's interesting, tabernacled is that word, among us. John says, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I believe that is what John is referring to. He was there, he saw it. And a combination of four words that John writes here tells us something we cannot really conceive. The word God became flesh. Now Peter, John, and James, with overwhelming terror, were beholding the reality of this man, this man, who is God, Jesus. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. The mandate of the majestic, loving Father. We have the overshadowing cloud. Matthew in 17 says it's a bright cloud. It's the Shekinah glory cloud. It accompanies the manifestation of God throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 16. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel. That they looked toward the wilderness and behold the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. Exodus 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud. Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud is very appropriate. It comes just as had it always come through the word of God. Matthew 17. While Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And then we hear the voice. And it says, suddenly, a voice came out of the cloud. It cut Peter short, saying, this is my beloved son. 
I wonder how this would tremble down to the heart and mind of the disciples. A week earlier, there was Peter, and he confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now he hears God himself speak and declare this truth. And surely it sounded much different when the creator of the universe said it than it did when this faltering, fearful, and foolish, impetuous little man who is now lying face down in the dust at the foot of Jesus. God spoke the truth, declaring this to be his son. Yet for all their weakness and fumbling, these three disciples were given a priceless treasure. They had what Jesus had told the Pharisees they would never possess. And the Father, John 5, 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you Pharisees have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, his logos. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. Matthew completes the statement of God the Father recording, In Him I am well pleased. Two years earlier, at the baptism of Christ, in the manifest presence of all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father proclaimed, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Then he says, Hear him. Hear him. Listen to him. 1,500 years earlier, Deuteronomy 18, God spoke through Moses prophesying this statement. Isn't this amazing? How the Old Testament and the New Testament tie together perfectly. And one holds the others up and is a fulfillment. And one is looking forward to the other. Then here we read in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And now, several thousand years later, the Father repeats the command. Listen to him. What Jesus was telling disciples at this time was very hard. It's not just a general listen to him. Uh, When he speaks, make sure you're you're cued in. They're saying, listen to him in what he is telling you now. These things that are so difficult to hear. This persecution, this suffering. This is my gospel. Listen to him. It will become what he tells you. And when the disciples heard it, Matthew writes... They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. What would you have thought? This, this glorious cloud around you, the voice of the creator of the universe speaking. You've just seen two heroes from the Old Testament, long, long dead. All this is happening. And this voice comes and they fall on their faces, totally terrified. Isaiah talks about almost being disintegrated. And I sense that sense with these men. Everything is falling apart. They're falling in fear. And then you have the moment with the men alone. The moment with the men alone in verse 8. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. 
Even more quickly than this amazing adventure had started, it was now past. No more dazzling white robe. No glorious blazing sunlight face. The startling appearance of Old Testament legends, Moses and Elijah, and their sobering conversation with Jesus was history. It's just the disciples and Jesus. That is how it would be. From there to the cross. In fact, in just a few months, it would not even be them. It would be Jesus alone. It would be Jesus alone, working what only He as the perfect Lamb of God could do. Giving His life in suffering and death for the payment of His children's sin. Only Jesus. Hebrews again, verse one, chapter 1, verse 3. It includes a brief, and it's, it's sort of a lonesome sounding, an eternally victorious phrase. When he had by himself purged our sins. The glorious Savior. God gave this transfiguration experience to confirm the hearts of the disciples that Jesus Christ is God. This experience would never be forgotten. Years later, Peter wrote, 1 Peter, or excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. For we do not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There you have the words. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty, his superbness, that is, glory, his splendor, his magnificence. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him. On the holy mountain. Awesome isn't that? Peter recalling. I recalled a, a, a weak pale experience. Early at the sermon. Here Peter recalls one of the most glorious things. That men have ever seen. That would have been something. Now. This is about it. We're not going to go through the whole thing. and I, I, I realize that's not going to work. We're not going to end this message with a strategic and well-planned landing on the runway. Uh, perhaps I'll say, put on your parachutes, and we're going to jump. We're going to finish right now. Rather than include the return down the mountain this morning, we're going to remain in the incomprehensible glory of the reality of who Jesus Christ is. One commentator wrote, the disciples are not in fellowship with Jesus because of their knowledge, virtue, or their abilities. They are in fellowship solely because of Jesus' sovereign call, and they remain in fellowship only because of His faithfulness to them. The times in which God has placed us, it's not simply the times in which we find ourselves or we live. These are the times in which God has specifically placed each one of you. Again, back in Paul's message in the Areopagus in chapter 17 of Acts. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. It is no accident that 
you are here this morning in Wichita, Kansas, in this very church building, worshiping Christ. He has put you here at this time. He has told us. He has done that for his purpose, that we can know him and glorify him. These are times when the message of the true identity of the omnipotent, all-glorious Jesus Christ as God could not be more necessary. These are times when the widowed Afghan mother with her two little babies is hiding in a cave hoping the Taliban won't find her because she came to Christ two years ago. These are the times when a poor shopkeeper in North Korea has been down in the bowels of a prison for five or six years never seeing the light of day because he loves this one who is transfigured before these men. These are the times when we are beginning to hear of sufferings and persecutions around the globe that we've never imagined. And we're even beginning to realize that may be here in this very city in times much faster than we ever imagined. We must remember that Jesus is God. And he controls the universe and the placement of every man, woman, and child on this earth. And things, some, some of these things are beyond our comprehension to understand his sovereignty, his goodness, but his plan is perfect. And we may be in difficult times. For remember, it wasn't just Jesus on the cross. It was Jesus with a face so radiant and powerful and bright that you couldn't even look at it. And it is Jesus whose robe itself radiated light. As he told Peter, Peter, put away the sword. If I wanted to, I could have called 10,000 angels down here. I don't know what his will would be for you or for me in the days ahead. But may we live these as if we live for a supernatural king of the universe who became man so that he might suffer and die on the cross to pay for our sin and give us his righteousness so that we can live forever. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I tell, tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has crossed over from death to life and will not come into condemnation. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the cross. This is a glorious moment. We don't see it for very long. I want to ask you one assignment that I read from another preacher. He says, I can encourage you to do, I, I encourage you to, to go home and read this description. Read this description at home. Go over it, read it aloud, read it in other translations, read it and ponder it and see what you see. One of the great skills an artist has is a skill in looking. There is a skill in looking. Some of us look, but we don't see. Take these passages, Mark 9, 2 through 8, and read them over and over again. Let that sink into you. This is the Jesus whom you serve and who owns you and is your Savior. Live for him this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would record this event and all the different details you'd give us from Luke's keenness to your prayer of your son to the brightness of the face of Christ to the glowing robe 
for the presence of the law and the prophets and Moses and Elijah. Lord, there is so much that was packed into that moment on earth. Uh, we'll never grasp its completeness. But I thank you that you showed yourself that way. And we know that when you return, uh, it will be e- even greater, far more glorious. And we will, we will reign with you. And we will walk with you, King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I do pray for our brothers and sisters, some of which are hanging on by a thread under great difficulty. Please strengthen them and show yourself to them. And Lord, please show yourself to us and prepare us so that we will bring glory to you when that precious moment we have comes to us to stand for you and suffer. Lord, give us, give us your grace, not to get us through, but so that you will be glorified. You are worthy, Lord, for eternity. Amen.